0: Hello, and welcome to Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narratives I was taught within white evangelicalism. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm so glad you're here. My first memoir, As Familiar as Family, is now available to purchase on my website at NikkiPappas.com. I'll share more about this at the end so we can get to today's episode. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by writer Tia Leving's. Tia creates content regarding the realities of Christian fundamentalism, which we will be discussing in our conversation. It's so great to be talking with you, Tia. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for this. Yes. Well, to start us off, we were kind of talking right before I jumped into this. Would you share a little more about yourself and your background? Anything you think would be beneficial to set a foundation for our conversation
1: yeah, so um, I always start from the ground up. I had a wild, very normal childhood in um, upstate New York. Not new. Why'd I say that? Upstate New York, Upper Michigan. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of New York. That's why um, I grew up in Upper Michigan with a very normal, like typical American childhood until I was 10. And then we moved to Florida, and I joined, my family joined a um, Southern Baptist mega church in Jacksonville. And that completely changed my formative years. Um, so I grew up with the rise of evangelicism in America, the politicization, politics can't speak this morning. Political. How do we say this? Politic. Politicization. politicization?
0: politicization. Uh, I know the
1: word you're saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. As that rose in our country, I, in parallel with my upbringing, mm-hmm. um, which groomed me just to completely, be, you know, sell out to be a. Um, wife and a mother, which I dutifully did with the first man that God chose for me. Um, Barely knew him, married at 19. Um, We moved, I met fundamentalist mentors involved with Bill Gothard's IBLP at that Mm -hmm. church um, and was mentored into the Institute of Basic Life Principles lifestyle, which included all of the big fundamentalist names um, that have had a large ripple effect in Um, our country I as a zealous passionate person took it on um, like fully and embodied it Um, and I was living in domestic violence and that domestic violence was sanctioned by my church so I didn't know which way was up really for a long time Um, fast forward to 14 years I eventually escaped at midnight with my children I was excommunicated just before that We've gone through many, um, my, my spiritual journey narrowed in focus as we went through those years into a um, covenant reformed cult. And then I got free in 2007. Um, I spent about 10 years unpacking all of this in therapy and uh, gradually speaking about it online, um, which, in, which involved writing it. And as I wrote it, I began to step into my own truth and my own identity. Um, and found the words to verbalize what I'd been through and at, to my horrors and also to amazement. Um, my character arc mirrors what somewhat what's happening in our nation right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's hit, a, um, it's resonated with a lot of people. Um, and so the last six months have been very, um, a big surge in, in um, being able to tell the story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. okay so the word you use grooming really stuck out to me because uh I am in the process with my book of getting it out there and my story and the tagline is leaving the toxic religion i was groomed for so really examining how we are groomed to accept abuse to normalize abuse mm-hmm. and so for me right like my childhood had a lot of sexual abuse and things that took away autonomy, chipped away at that. And it sounds like even once you joined this mega church, the mm-hmm. teaching you're getting, right? So it's like the theology, it's mm-hmm. like a misbelief. I I was already holding a misbelief that I am not my own, right? My body is not my own. And then it gets a whole theology and Bible verse put to it. Like literally being told you were not your own. You were bought with a price, you know, right. glorify God in your body. Yeah. And so yeah, just that word, just really hitting me right there. And being married at nineteen, uh, and so I was married when I was twenty. And I tell people like I ten out of ten do not recommend it. Uh, <laughs> like you just, it's and like even though like my story isn't the same as your story, mm-hmm. it's still too young to get married. Like it's just your brain. And and it's funny. I had a cousin who even tried to talk with me, not about me getting married, but you know, when I was in my teenage angst about some breakup, you know, and she's just like, your brain isn't done developing. Like, and you know, just kind of like, Oh, whatever. Uh, And, but in some ways for me, so I know for you, you're saying you, you married the one that God sent for you. Right. Um, I didn't expect to have any um, say in the matter. God's best
1: was who showed up and said, I would like to marry you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was really our, both of our pastors, we had two big pastors and lots of services and all of that. And our two big pastors, one of which was a president of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, they both had courtships and um, well, they they didn't call it courtships, but they dated their spouses for two weeks before getting married. Both of them did. And this was in the, you know, maybe 50s. Because they were older men by the time I was growing up there, but we were in this culture of don't expect to be together long when when you know you know God's best is you know going to show up and want you and the the carving it's very systematic and slow like a drip of water on a rock how a woman is formed from early childhood through her adolescence to receive accept no assertion no autonomy. Um, mold yourself to what's presented to you. So I did not expect any kind of critical thought in the, in the person who showed up. Um, and the person who showed up happened to be very charming. Um, Mm -hmm. I wasn't attracted to him, but I was caught up in the swirl of being wanted. Um, and we had a short engagement. We were, we were married within a year of having met one another. Um, and there were cracks and red flags within months, <laughs> but I didn't think, um, I was allowed to say no to that. I thought it was my job to help fix and serve and that love covers all. And, um, with prayer and with Jesus, we would be fine. Mm. Um, which now when I look back at not only was I young cause 19 is young, yeah. um, I was naive. I was, I was childlike naive because being childlike is encouraged, you're not mm-hmm. supposed to really grow up to be a mature autonomous female woman you're supposed to remain childlike sweet um keep sweet is in the buzz right now because of the mm-hmm. flds special on netflix but um, there's so many parallels to christian fundamentalism it's like they're one in the same with well without, without the big um the pastel dresses and the big buns um we have our own version <laughs> of the uniform yeah. um but yeah it, it was i did not expect to be able to say no to my to the partner and and that was despite being um we, we failed a compatibility test in our premarital counseling and our um premarital counselor at church um said I don't recommend you get married and mm-hmm. it turned into another abuse um event for me where i had to soothe his despair my partner's despair and um and we got married anyway and it was it was a I don't even really have a a succinct word for what it was (laughs) because it's both. And, you know, he is the father of five beautiful children. Um, I, that was 15 years of my life. Um, and I don't wish him any ill will. And at the same time, our whole family suffered under the system. He was not encouraged to be better than he was. He was, what he was doing was sanctioned.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Complicated. Yeah. It's so interesting. So, I can't help but write, like try to find the parallels in what you're right. saying to my own story. Cause like uh, Heather Heath who wrote lovingly abused and grew up in the IBLP when she was a beta reader for my story, she's like, I'm surprised at how much I resonate with an ex Calvinist, you know, because during my um, 19 to 29 years old was in this uh, reformed camp uh, very hard. And she was like, I'm surprised so much that we identify with each other. And I was like, well, the power dynamics and the control at the root of it are the same. Right. And so we see the same things playing out. And so, yeah, like talking through my story and thinking about it with my editor, she had really good questions to ask me because I'd asked her when we first talked, do you have any connection to Christianity? And she was like, no. And I was like, okay, that might be a good thing, right? (laughs) One, you won't be invested in any sort of, there won't be a protective need to defend any aspect of anything, right. mm-hmm. but also you're going to have a different perspective. So she had really good questions of asking that got to my whys, my motivations, mm-hmm. because to her as an outsider, she's like, why did you go to this church? Why did you trust this pastor? Like not accusatory, just right, yeah. curious, you know? So I hear what you're saying. And I hear mm-hmm. that you're just explaining your motivations. You're, you're giving the whys behind it. Whereas an outsider would be like, I just don't understand, but it's like, you had, all, you had reasons I and they were, you those outsiders that have no religious baggage.
1: They are like (laughs) these beautiful mystical unicorns that I just, I look at them with awe. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't know what it's like to like grow up with the fear of hell's your earliest Mm. memory or, um, you know, that you're, you're, destiny was already determined for you from your earliest childhood and that every single system in your life was manipulating you to this end. Like they don't have any idea. It's, it's incredible to me. I love their perspective. And it's also been challenging as a, as a writer to, to to remember that, like, I did not ever see myself as an educator. Um, and that's the word that keeps coming back at me. Like you're educating me on this Mm. world that I see, but I don't understand. Um, I would not have self-identified with that word, um, at all, but now I'm seeing it. Like there is this giant curiosity people have of like, why in the world would they choose this? Because they don't have any way to relate to such intentional self-subjugation that's alarming to them. Um, and that's like a driving force for me. It's not just talking about what happened. It's, this is why women would choose this against themselves, um, and why they continue to. And, Mm -hmm. You know, we're fresh off the news this weekend of Roe, and that's a whole lot of women who have voted against their own bodies and don't realize it. They don't think about it that way. So okay. it's, um, it. I just think it's ama- amazing the outside perspective, and and also I like to come back to it and, um, and and build a bridge of understanding because the build the bridge is how we fix it. I believe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And even just identifying a lot with you with the aspect of going all in on something, right? Like I, my personality is very much wired to whatever I believe I believe with all of myself. Mm -hmm. And so I've had to go from, you know, swinging all the way over to here where I was. And now I, then I went all the way over here and kind of brought some of that same dogmatic energy that i oh, had absolutely. here yes. because I hadn't gotten to the, again, the root of the the things, right. Of the white supremacy, of the patriarchy, of the capitalism, these systems, right. I just replicated it over here, right. Which uh, Joe Lumen talks about decolonizing your faith, not just quote deconstructing. Oh, exactly. Right. So right. it's like, so then now I'm kind of like, okay, well, how do I exist? without the like where I still believe what I believe but if it's not harming other people if you believe differently than me differently than me then how do I respect your humanity right and then you've got the examples of where it's like no this is clearly right. so it's just I don't know I've just been over the past few years just like who am I how do I exist in this world trying yeah. to find that way and finding people who very much I look up to like you and to speak in a way like yes for people to say you're educating us about what's happening and so
1: um let me say something about that because um in christian fundamentalism one of the things we see all the time is that if you're if you have a natural bend to fundamentalist thinking um pure ideologies um, being the best at something perfectionism people pleasing codependency all of those things come along for the ride and you leave the religious piece of it you swing so far to the other side and bring all that fundamentalism with you and apply it to whatever audacious cause you're, you're, you're fired up about. And we see it all the time online. And then swinging back to the middle for me has looked like fluidity, like staying soft, listen, listen more than I speak. And I talk a lot, which means I have to listen a lot. Um, and, (laughs) And allowing myself not to have hard and fast beliefs. People ask me all the time, well, what do you believe now? And are you still a Christian? And I'm, I identify as spiritually private because it's answering belief questions with mystery. These are matters of mystery, matters of unknown, um, matters of personal experience and, and um, my own you know, individual take on things. Those things, if I p- apply a binary, hard and fast, black and white answer to it, that's how I got in trouble in the first place. It is so attractive to be in a box and to be with a camp and to know who you identify with and it is so dangerous to do that. Mm-hmm. So that's, I just wanted to like reflect back at you with that because um, taking fundamentalism with you into other other places um, is part of the healing process. And if you stay there, you've just replicated the system you left.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think just, I've been again on such a journey of realizing how much I want to belong, right? And I think that these systems that are harming people, are capitalizing on this desire to belong. And like you were saying, being excommunicated, like when you, when there's the threat of losing your whole community, that's a really good control tactic. And it can be cloaked under "well, we just want to protect the flock or whatever the spiritual language is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, and so I'm just hearing you talk about all of this and seeing, the abuse in subtle ways. And then I know that you also had um, not subtle abuse, very direct abuse um, in your story. And I'm hearing the fruit. You know, we talked about how Christians love to talk about a, tree will be known by its fruit and a good tree produces good fruit. And then it's like, but you're not examining the fruit being produced by your beliefs. And so as you started to see that rotten fruit of Christian fundamentalism, I'm curious how you left and what that process was like for you in the, um, not just the physical leaving in the middle of the night, fleeing with your children, but also your journey really leaving it, um, from inside of you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is a million cracks and moments where the light and the water was able to come in to me. Um, I had been so I get married. I had been so rigid and so right and so you know, youth will give you a lot of passion. That's for sure. Like these young zealots. That's the reason why we see young youthful zeal um, in missionaries, in in soldiers, and you know, they they love to capitalize on um, the passion of the young people. And I was whole hog and I had um, sexual assault on my wedding night that threw me into shock. Um, And then I was quickly pregnant. And then I had three babies in three years. Um, And so what I had in my situation was an erratic, mentally unstable human, my partner, who also we were in a systematically controlling environment that put a lot of pressure on him to be the patriarch. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was not equipped to handle that kind of pressure, but he constantly strove for that control and I constantly deferred into it. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: it was a toxic soup, um, that neither one of us was able to heal through. I'm not making excuses for him, but I also just, Mm -hmm. I see how men are also, um, exploited in that system. Yeah. He needed mental health. He needed help. He needed help in a big way. And that was not even on the table. Um, So in 1999, my third baby um, had a heart defect and she died in infancy. And that was the first massive crack into my heart. Um, As tragic as it was, it was also life opening and life giving. She completely changed my life and she completely changed my thought process because suddenly this system I had been serving and this God that I believed in Um, didn't fit into tragedy. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit in a children's hospital. It, uh, the platitudes fail, the, um, the pat answers, the, the toxic positivity and the refusal to allow people to grieve. And Mm -hmm. um, I was just completely altered by that grief. So on the cusp, like right at that, right as we left, um, I, the internet was in the middle of becoming more accessible in homes, um, which is life-giving to someone who's in isolating domestic abuse. Having the internet is, you cannot underscore enough how important it is to have some kind of outside tether. And I fell in with some really smart um, homeschooling moms because that was the realm that I was allowed to be in. Um, And these particular homeschooling moms (laughs) were um, women who thrived on asking questions. They weren't a they were increasingly not afraid. We all, we all struggled at first to um, to ask the questions we hadn't been allowed to ask, um, to read books, to talk about movies, to talk about um, everything. We, we just, we, we talked about everything. Um, and so this online forum became um, a place, like kind of a pseudo college for me. It, it, it allowed me to um, have this kind of private life where I was allowed to challenge these beliefs. And then on the outside I was Really trying to make fundamentalism work for my family, um, but I started to assert myself against some of them. So that's when I was able to put the Pearl Book down, and that's when I was able to mm. look at um, Doug Phillips and Vision Forum and um, and the, and the Bill Gothard textbooks and be like, No, I don't like these. These are awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hadn't allowed myself to say that before, and um, and I wasn't always successful. It this is a ten year process. Um, I was not always successful in in not, because I was trying to do what I I think a lot of women in this situation do is, is be free within my bounds. And so, and when I say be free within the bounds, this is where you see women who are so creative. They're so ambitious. They're so capable, but they've boxed themselves into this little lifestyle. And so they're trying so hard to be rock stars at their MLM and really controlling parents and aesthetic influencers on Instagram. And they're, they're, thriving but they're in this little box they've built for themselves mm-hmm. and at some point it's going to explode yeah. um and mine did because blogging came on the scene and i yeah. was an early blogger um very good at it very quickly um this was back when the pioneer woman was just yeah. starting and Mama Glenn glennon doyle was just starting and we would comment on each other's blogs and we had blog readers and my blog was called living deliberately And I was not supposed to blog because I was not doing it in my husband's name and I was not supposed to really write my own thoughts. So the elders at our church had big problems with me from the start. I was, had danger written all over me. They didn't want their wives to touch me. They didn't want, you know, no, no get togethers like that woman's dangerous. And all I was doing was writing about apples and homeschooling and books and, you know, the great books and all the classical homeschooling things. And, you know, I was in my lane, but I was, they could see the fire. They could see the danger. Um, and the blog blew up. It was about 80,000 hits a day. So it was big. This was before the Panda update, the Google algorithm update that you probably don't remember, but it was, it changed the internet after that because algorithm became a thing. So before it was like this big free for all online. And, um, Anyway, uh, where am I in the story? So it was that year that I blogged dangerous ideas that I had learned online that got us in church discipline that got me excommunicated from our church, Mm -hmm. which actually was a good thing. Um, it was hard thing. It was very, very hard thing, but it was ultimately really good. Um, and then without that system of control to stabilize my unstable husband, um, Mm -hmm. his sanity slipped and he, that was a year of hell. Um, and that's why we had to escape in the night.
0: I just wanna pause and just hold yeah. space for that. So yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing. Mm. Yeah, again, just so much hitting me. Um, you know, we went to a church that I am now sure the pastor was a narcissist. And you know, like I said, my situation is different in that, even though I was young getting married and don't recommend it, I'm glad I married who I did. He is a, like, oh, just such an an amazing human. And so he, we both, we both bought all in on the teachings of get married, young, short engagement, all those things, right. That were very detrimental and just teachings about women, you know, um, that viewed women as threats that fostered within our relationships with women, even my relationships, right. Because then I'm viewing women as a threat. I'm viewing women as a potential, um, yeah, someone who needs to be, uh, yeah, just mistrust, like don't trust these people. And so, yeah, and, and it was the quiverful culture. And it's interesting because when I tried to talk with someone else at the church about it, a, a another prominent woman in the church, she looked at me and she's like, Oh, you don't know anything about quiverful. And it's like, we have been at the church from the very beginning, this pastor had done our premarital counseling and we knew the expectation. Like we we had to listen to some podcast or something about not taking birth control and um, doing the counting method. If we wanted to try to, uh, cause I was still in college when we got married. And so then every opportunity this pastor had, he talked about the verses that go with the quiver full, you know, about the arrow, <laughs> the arrows, in a, you know, yeah. so blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And it's like, and then by his own lifestyle, right? Like he and his wife having baby after baby after baby. And it's like anyone there from the beginning. Oh, and so to go back to what you're saying about the zealousness of young people, that's one part I put in my book is like pro tip for pastors who want to replicate their beliefs. You just get a bunch of young people. He had been a youth pastor. And, you know, those pesky parents didn't like some of the things he was teaching. And so I'm assuming that's why he was like, well, now I'm going to reach college students. Mm -hmm. And the church became the focus was we're going to reach 18 to 25 year old men, because that is who is missing from the larger church. And we want to raise them up for God's glory to be leaders. And I was like, I'm not even in that category, but I'm buying all in because yes, I want strong leaders for families, you know, (laughs) and so I bought all in on it and then the pastor doesn't even have to do that much work because you've got this whole team of zealots who will go con- convert your unlikelies, you know, help or help weed out the unlikelies, I guess is more like it. <clears throat> they help get rid of anyone who's gonna not. And then you, then the blame doesn't rest on you because you didn't say such and such, like, and you can't, you're not responsible for these church members saying things, right? So it's just all of that. Yeah. And the No room for grief. That part hitting me um, with the death of your daughter and how the theology just doesn't give room for that. There's no room for grief. Like we had a fire four months after we got married, and thankfully no one was hurt, but we lost every everything basically that we as newlyweds had registered for. And I remember wanting to cry, but then being gathered in a living room at someone's house. And, you know, and the pastor was like, just thank, thank God that happened at 4 PM and not 4 AM when people were, you know, like, so people could be out of the building and all these things. And then my sweet husband, because again, we were all bought in, he just wanted to praise God. Right. And so then I was like, oh, so I can't be sad about this. I have to be grateful. And so that, that really landed on me. And then how you found this community of people. And I keep thinking about how, you know, our healing is individual, but it's not individualistic in the sense of. Um, we shouldn't be siloed off from others because then we're not going to actually heal in um, the book body, Oh, what?
1: We don't do it alone.
0: Yeah. 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 And so um, I just read Body Becoming by Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. And they talked about like changing me changes the world. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: just seeing how in your own story and finding community and finding people who you're kind of getting bold together and growing together is really beautiful. But then how (laughs) that landed at your church where you have a system that's more invested in protecting their image than protecting you as an image bearer. Right. And so that's just so dangerous. Uh, and so you got out of it. And then I'm curious now mm-hmm. it's been, it's been how long since you that left? Was 2007. Yeah. 2007. Halloween night, Halloween night, 2007. Wow. 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 And so now, now that you're out of it and you've been speaking and things, um, I guess I'll go ahead and ask you, what have you seen as some of the fruit of leaving behind Christian fundamentalism? Oh God. It's like
1: um, being, it's like stepping into another orchard. Mm. It truly is. Um, <laughs> I always have this image of, um, so I was dying. I was literally dying mm. when I was in fundamentalism. I was um, very close to suicide um, and being murdered simultaneously. And it was, it was really it got to a place where, I was gonna die it was just a question of how um and if my children were gonna be killed as well and um and i had i didn't i didn't articulate that with language at the time but i knew it in my heart um i knew it in my body my fear responses my trauma responses Mm -hmm. there was a finality to it and so the imagery that always comes to mind is this shriveled raisin on the vine um and when i looked around me i also didn't see fruit I saw death. Um, th- we were solving for God as if it was an equation that we could we could answer everything for. Um, and we were trying to be the most right. You're constantly trying mm-hmm. to be the most right on something. And you're constantly deciding for others what's best for them <laughs> without allowing them any autonomy to feel that themselves. Um, and I was projecting that onto others as well because that was what was done to me people were deciding for me what was best for me. Um, and then not, not knowing what to do with that, I was then deciding for others what was best for them. Um, and at this parallel, the struggle and, and conflict within myself is that I was also learning how to be a non-coercive parent and I had stopped mm-hmm. spanking my kids and I was putting my foot down about the weird curriculums that we were trying to use. And, um, and so there was this tension and then this break and I leave. And when I come out, everything they taught me about life out here has been a lie. And like, mm-hmm. it is beautiful out here. There is love out here. There is juicy fruit out here. Yeah. <laughs> it's juicy. Yeah. It's happy. It's, um, it's when you respect someone else's autonomy to live the way they live, you get to celebrate their, their gorgeous beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and the love that came around me that continues to come around me is just shining light it's, Mm -hmm. it's always light and love. Um, and I know that's what they told me I would experience in Christianity, but that is never what I experienced every single bright moment that I thought that I thought I was having in Christianity came with shadows, painful shadows where I was suffering in private and I wasn't allowed to express or be, everybody had to be very uniform, um, and same. And, um, what's the word I want where you're homogenous. Um, And out here, it's just, it truly is rainbows and (laughs) sunshine. (laughs) And even um, because to not sound Pollyanna in that way, I'm not trying to like say that there's no hardship out here. Um, One of the most refreshing things about it is that I'm allowed to have a spectrum of emotions. I'm allowed to have a range. If I'm having a bad day or I'm struggling with anxiety, I can say I'm struggling with anxiety today and I don't think I can Mm -hmm. show up in the way that I had planned. Yeah, And I don't have to be ashamed about that. I can just mm-hmm. speak it. I don't have to go pray or repent or get down on my knees. I don't have to ascribe any greater meaning to it. It can truly just be, I'm mm-hmm. having an anxious day. I'm a human being. I'm not perfect. And um, my body needs rest. And that's that's where real grace is in the honesty and integrity of that. That's truly grace. And that has changed my view of the divine completely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. So much of that, like starting back at the, I remember near the end of our time there speak at the church where we were at speaking with the past, the lead pastor Mm -hmm. and saying, like, I feel like I'm suffocating. Yeah. Yeah. And after that conversation, nothing changed. And that was what it took for me to realize it doesn't matter that women here feel like we're suffocating. Those of us who do, it doesn't matter. And more than that, when you foster a culture of disembodiment and detaching people from their emotions and labeling emotions and your gut reaction or uh, anything of the body, the flesh as bad, Mm -hmm. then we can't trust what I'm feeling to be any barometer for the church. That's a problem for me to sort through. That's not something that church needs to change. And so with that, you know, uh, came suicidal ideation before we left the church in that six months. Um, there was a spiral before there was a climbing out and, and leaving for me And like you, uh, stopped spanking. Like after we left that church, went to a different church, kind of jumped right into another church and, um, instead of just, and I don't know, I I can't say if it was the right decision or not for us. Um, and then other people make different decisions too. Um, but we did, but it was a mega church that we kind of got to just disappear into because, Mm -hmm. For 10 years, we'd be at the we'd been at this small church where we fulfilled almost every role imaginable and we were exhausted. And so we got to go to this church where we got to just go receive. Mm -hmm. And it's not a church that I want to go receive from now, Mm -hmm. but at the time it ministered to me in certain ways. And that pastor, just an offhand remark said something. Oh, because at the other church, the previous church, um, like you're talking about, they didn't recommend the pearls book, but I had been recommended that by someone else from the church, but it was never recommended on a like large scale at the church. Mm -hmm. And they did read a book though. Stephen had participated. My husband had participated in an elder training class Where the goal was that you would go through the class is like a year long, write all these papers, kind of like mini seminary, but done by the pastors of the church to really make sure that you can uh, internalize and replicate their beliefs. Right. Um, and only men, of course, (laughs) of course, only the men. And so, um, but in that we, uh, he had to read a book and we read it together. And in that book, you know, it laid out this whole biblical defense of spanking. So it's like, we knew all that. And when we had children, um, our oldest, you know, we did spank him. And now we went to this other church and at that time, and the pastor just made this offhand remark about when your kids mess up big is when they need the biggest hugs. Mm-hmm. And that changed everything for me because then like maybe the next day, my, um, how old would he have been at the time? Like you, I had three under three. Um, so <laughs> 10 out of 10 do not recommend. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so hard. You're outnumbered You're by hard. little infants. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's So hard. So, yes, I mean, he, w- I don't know what he was at the time. My, my timeline, you know, it's hard to do the math on it, but you know, he wasn't that old and he hit me. And looking back, I'm like, of course he was mimicking what we did to him. You know, so he hit me and he ran off. And all I thought was when your kids mess up big is when they need the biggest hugs. Oh. And I went after him and he was crawled under the little one's crib all the way in the back corner. And I was like, come here, buddy. And he's like, are you like, please don't spank me. I was like, I'm not going to spank you. I just want to hold you. And we sat there and I rocked him. And he said to me, mommy, I'm sorry. I hit you. And I'm telling you, like, that's all it took. That's all it took. And I was like, why would I ever have thought? And I had a very, I had a violent upbringing and I was like, I'll never spank my kids. Then I'm told this whole theological defense of it. And I'm like, I don't want to, again, it goes against my body and what my body's telling me. I have to ignore that. right? And so I did it and did not like it one bit. And Mm -hmm. then when I was like, no, no, this is what, this is what our relationship should feel like. I'm like, oh, I can't go back. I can't go that back. Power of the Mother Heart.
1: The 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 grooming we were in for a lifetime. Dulls our mother heart in our it conditions us not to hear it. Because yeah. if we listen to it, the whole fucking
0: patriarchy falls. That's
1: right. Yeah. <laughs> and they know that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then and, and again, just to go back to the idea of if Jesus said I came to bring life and that it would be a ab- abundant Mm -hmm. And what is happening around me is not abundant life. Like what you were saying, instead there's all this shame and I want to go where there's no shame. Right. And so I just love, I love love that. that
1: Thank you for sharing that. And, um, it gets me, it gets me (laughs) the motherhood journey is. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so what influenced you then to start speaking publicly after getting out of it. Um, cause I know you said you know? it was just kind of like this gradual thing. So
1: <laughs> it was gradual. Um, so one of my, I've been through like every major trauma modality that exists. And, um, one of the techniques, one of my therapists recommended was that I start writing it and I had stopped writing. I had you know, been this prolific blogger and then lost my words, um, after the divorce and the, um, initial recovery, there was a lot of, um, a lot of recovery that had to happen. Mm -hmm. And I got very sick after I remarried um, because all that had been stored in my body had manifested into symptoms. And so uh, coming out of that, and she's like, why don't you start writing again? And so I did. I started with fiction. I started with short stories and um, words have always been um, source for me. It's, Mm -hmm. It's always been super integral to hearing myself think, but it, that's one of the things fundamentalism took from me Mm -hmm. because I was always parroting other people's thoughts and trying to justify other people's thoughts. And so there are large gaps in my life where I didn't write because that felt like such a violation of who I really am to, Mm -hmm. to, um, spin and cover and mask and, you know, not be myself on the page. So it was that process of writing where I started to see on the, on paper, like, this is what happened. This is what it looked like. This is um, how you feel about it. This is what you would really say if you felt brave. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I wrote my story and I started with it as autobiographical fiction, kind of like Mm -hmm. um, the caged bird. I know why the caged Mm -hmm. bird sings. Um, Why do I feel like I don't have that title, right? (laughs) Maya Angelou's (laughs) Um, but anyway that's autobiographical fiction it's her story but she fictionalized it and it reads like a novel and so I did that with my story first as a way to have some emotional distance from it but to see it Um, that was about eight years ago 12 drafts ago
0: (laughs) and it was originally
1: called the American burqa because I used to say the denim jumper is the American burqa at the time that had relevance because we were in the middle of the Gulf War and Iraq and all of that and the people around me, these Calvinist reformed Christians were very upset about jihadi women in full burqa and their oppression. <laughs> I was like, do you not see? It's exactly the same. You, the thing, the systems of control and the way that the women are hiding is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. That title has not aged well. And in the book will not be named that because um, the Muslim conversation in America has changed. So it does not act adequately portray the content anymore. But that was the working title for all of this time. And, um, at some point I think around drafts four or five, I had gotten to a place where I wanted to own it. I just wanted it. Mm. I wanted it in my name. I didn't want a pseudonym. I didn't want it to be fictionalized. I wanted to really step into it. And when I did, that was like, one of the final breakthroughs of being able mm-hmm. to fully integrate my experience. Um, we talk about in trauma resolution, the full integration of it is how you mm-hmm. heal it and move on from it. You're no longer bound to those triggers. You're no longer bound to the damage that was caused to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it feels like an elusive prize <laughs> as you're soldiering through trauma recovery. Um, but writing my my story in my own language and in my own words with my own name was a big, massive turning point for me. And then I was, I knew I had something, I knew I was going to publish it. I wanted to go for wide distribution and I had it in the back of my head, that at some point I'll talk about this more viscerally online. I Mm. hinted at it in my posts because I love social media for the same reason I love the internet. It's a tether. Um, It's a, it's exposure. It's, it's a, you know, a way to be social with people outside of your worldview and outside of your swim lane. And, um, and it's truly social for me. I love, <laughs> that's how I get a lot of my diversity is through social media. So um, I had been hinting at it in posts and I had been mostly sharing the writing journey. And then Josh Duggar's trial hit. Mm-hmm. And when his trial, you know, which I had followed and I knew like Josh Duggar's initial assaults against the girls was before mm-hmm. their first special and Their, their rise Mm. through the ranks um, parallels mine in the, I call it the great gaslighting Mm -hmm. (laughs) because, because America was celebrating billions of people were watching these episodes of what I knew was actually deep abuse. And there are so many families who live like the Duggars that don't make it on TV, who have sons in prison or family incest or large, just, you know, rotten fruit. They have raisins, they have rotten fruit. To show for all of that, and they're not on TV, and nobody's ever even to know their story. Um, but put a put a smile on it, and make the girls wear dresses and sing, and all the stuff that Michelle does, and all of it. And it was selling a a vision of Quiverful that isn't reality, and nobody can say that except someone who's lived it. Yeah, most people who've lived it can't talk about it because they're still in their trauma resolution phases. They don't have the articulation and the emotional distance to be able to say. This is what it is. This is what's happened. This is what happened to me. This is what continues to go on if we perpetuate the cycle without it re-traumatizing them. So, and I knew I had done that work. So when he, when his trial hit, I hit a tweet about it. The tweet went kind of baby viral. Um, I asked somebody who knows a lot about social media, what do I do now? And she goes, start making reels. (laughs) And I was like, I'm not going to talk to my phone. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And, and I did, and I did it without, um, like I didn't, I wasn't on TikTok yet. I didn't watch a lot of reels. So I don't really know what the trends were other than the, um, the pointing and the little uh-huh. bubbles. And I was like, I don't even know how to do that. Um, so I just did it my way. I just started sharing. And um, mm-hmm. I was shocked when they resonated as quickly as they did, but they have rapidly grown and they rapidly yeah. resonated. And then opportunities came down because the platform was building. So that's that's really, I mean, that's the long answer to how I started speaking about it. It poured like a fountain because it was time.
0: Mm. Mm, Because it was time. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So. Yeah. The, the Duggar trial, and we can have a a question I want to ask even about, about that in a little bit, but yeah, I just, I know for me, right. The writing piece, my therapist told me like, keep writing Like before it was going to be anything. She was Mm -hmm. like, writing is helping you heal. Right. And so, uh, and like you getting sick, right. Like I, I know like the whole body keeps the score mentality, right. Like, uh, every year around the time we left the church, uh, had this like funky week, and then I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that was when we left, right? Or like other big events of trauma, and so just like you, like I had sort of fictionalized my earliest draft of what, um, well, actually my earliest draft, right? If I look all the way back to like I don't know, 2014, 15, something like that, mm-hmm. when it was going to be a very different story than what mm-hmm. it is now. Like I can see little little vestiges of what I'm telling now were present back then. And yeah. And then for a while I had the working title restored dignity um, before what it is now as familiar as family. And so like you, I thought like this will give me some distance if I fictionalize it in a way. Right. And it did and it helped. And I like, I entered that to some competitions. It didn't get picked up. So then I revisited it two years ago, maybe last year, I don't know, again, pandemic time, even more so makes things run together. Um, and so it's so encouraging to hear you say 12 versions ago, you know, oh, because yeah. like this is, <laughs> this is the process. Like this is what happens. And, uh, yeah. And I was thinking too, I talked with Tasha Hunter. She interviewed me for her podcast when we speak. And she had told me uh, like she asked, or maybe she just mentioned that she started getting kind of tired of talking about the same thing over and over again. And at that point I'd only done three interviews and I was kind of feeling that like, Oh, I'm kind of tired of talking about the same thing (laughs) over and over again. And then my editor two weeks ago, she was like, how are you feeling about your book? And I was like, I'm just ready to be done with it. Like not like, and go to the next thing, not in this insatiable, I can't be satisfied, but in a, I think I've said what I need to say. Mm-hmm. I think I've said the thing that has helped me heal and that I, I don't think I have anything more to add to help others on their journeys. And so I'm curious, like if you have felt that sort of um, like you know how important it is, but do you get tired of talking about it and what's challenging about it for you?
1: Um, I get tired of talking about it when it stays in the place of darkness. It has been moving into light and recovery. I just did a thing for my birthday called the diamond days where um, I mm-hmm. asked my followers to like celebrate, tell me what your diamond day is. What a uh, diamond day is defined as this moment where you're reclaiming something that was taken to, from you or mm-hmm. lost It's the moment of autonomy and a personal accomplishment. And it's really personal. It can be you know, really different from somebody else's diamond day. They're, they're very unique, um, but I, it's celebrating healing. And I don't think I'll ever get tired of that. Um, one of the things that's interesting about my personal journey is the, because I'm processing it constantly with people and I'm um, kind of a, like I've been a doula for childbirth and it and I feel like oh, there's a little parallel happening there. I always bring like mom energy and big sister energy everywhere <laughs> yeah. I come. And so I'm very like come alongside and assist kind of help um, as I do that. Um, that's fresh and that's growth and that's um, I don't think I'll ever get tired. I'm sorry about my dog by the way. I know you're um, I don't think I'll ever get tired of of being alongside women and helping them grow, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's healing upon healing because that's reclaiming what was lost. And the details of what was lost are getting a little more obscured, I'm finding mm-hmm. as I go because I'm not like in that acute phase of mm-hmm. memory more. I've healed and the scar tissue starts to fade over time. Um but being alongside people and helping them um or just being with them, just being present with them. Not not even helping. Like I might not have anything to offer except presence. That's sometimes all it takes. Yeah. Like they just need to know that someone else is in the room with them or that somebody is up ahead and has done the work and that they too can do the work. They don't necessarily need anything from me. Um I don't think I'll get tired of that, and I think mm. that can, take on, as far as writing goes, that can that can show up in so many genres and forms. Um, and I don't, I think the, I think the future's bright. <laughs> I think it's fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's something that I, again, on this very fresh journey for me, mm-hmm. realizing that the practice of presence is what makes me feel known and mm-hmm. seen. Like if someone can just be with me like yeah. that's enough for me. Mm-hmm. And so I love that. And also like knowing again, that there are people like you who have been doing this a long time gives hope to me. Like even when we started going to a church, um, January last year, it's in Hawaii. So when I say going, I mean, yeah. attending online, cause we live in South Carolina. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> we got to talk with the pastor, David and uh, David's wife, Amy, who I'd met online. I'd met Amy through Instagram and we got to talk with them and realizing like how long they've been quote deconstructing and decolonizing. And it's like, Oh, Oh, cause so many of the people we knew personally were our age or mm-hmm. have been doing it the same amount of time as us. And so to find again, just people who have been doing it and can speak um, in ways that just give hope. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. so with the Duggar family and other families that have popularized these teachings. And like you said, they're bringing it mainstream and making it look like something to replicate and that is wholesome and family friendly in your homes. Mm -hmm. All the while, you know the underside of it and what the real fruit that is being produced. And you make a point in your videos to say they don't want to stop with that, they want to take it to the whole nation. Right. And then further than that globally, right. Mm -hmm. Like we know that through, through uh quote missions. And so, yeah, what message do you have for anyone who diminishes or dismisses the harm done by families like the Duggars and the IBLP or some similar fundamentalist groups? What
1: message do I have for them? I usually politely encourage them to move on Mm -hmm. if they're Diminishing survivors. I don't tolerate that in my spaces. Um, if you don't know very much about a survivor's story and you have questions, there's very polite ways to do that, respectful ways to do that. Um, but if you're diminishing or um, uh, patronizing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have any tolerance for that. Um, I think one of the big dangers is the cognitive dis- dissonance that we have seen in the past four or five years, especially in our country is going to be a factor in the situation. Um, fundamentalists and um, high control religion, quiverful, all of this, all of these forces that we're seeing, they are not secret about their plans. Yeah. They do not hide the fact that the way they live is the way they think everyone should live. That's right. And when they move into positions of power, they actually have Power to make us live the way they want us to live. It is their theology and they're not secret. They're evangelists about it. So if we listened to them, just take them at their own word, we can see the end result. We know what's coming for us. But we instead have this mass denial oh, it's not going to, they're not coming for our birth control next. You're being crazy. They're not really going to try to make us live. This is not going to be Gilead. This is not going to be the handmaid's tale. It's like, I lived the prequel to, to The Handmaid's Tale. That is where it, where it ends. And they tell you that's where it ends. They are gonna have dominion of the earth. That's what they're going for. How do they do it first? They take dominion of America. How do they do that? They get us into these red and blue states and they start a war. They take control of our, they remove checks and balances. They, remove, they take control of our heads of you know state and government. They've been very strategic, very open, very patient this is strategy that was laid out decades ago and we're seeing the fruit of it today um so i mean a message for people it's like know some history and listen listen to the source take them at their word they're absolutely ardent um they're sincere they're genuine they really believe this they will really go to war to do it. They have said that. <laughs> so yeah. I don't, you don't need somebody to like a prophet, you know, an an, out, an outside prophet to say, this is what's coming. Yeah. Just listen to them. Just take them seriously. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And like, in talking about history, I want to give a shout out to Letty Gore, who is a historian in Wilmington, North Carolina. And she talks about how she connects these dots from the past to the present. So what we see Mm -hmm. presently happening is rooted in the realities of black women during enslavement, right. And controlled birthing um, within that. Right. And so it's kind of just replicating. And like when we know a whole civil war was fought, right. Like over things like what was considered like humans who were considered property and wanting to, to keep that. And it was the same vein, right? Like you can trace who these people were. And so again, like when you're not doing the work to uproot those things, it's just going to show up in a new iteration. Right. And so that's what's yeah. Like just sitting with that. And like you said, they, they aren't hiding it. And and back in the 1800s and 1900s, they weren't hiding it. Like these people have always been
1: very direct.
0: (laughs) They went underground because they got beat,
1: but they didn't go away. You know, in my in my first marriage, we had books on our shelves. He was a um, states' rights sympathist. He um, admired the Klan. We had books on our shelves mm-hmm. that talked about the mongrelization of the races. Mm-hmm. Um, he very much white supremacist, and that did not. I, it was a good reminder for me. I had never been exposed to any of that, but it w- it became you know I was it was always present, and it became like this reminder to me that he hasn't gone anywhere. They're just biding their time. Mm-hmm. And that civil war that they fought, they'll fight again. They're just waiting for states' rights. They're waiting to reinstitute all of these things that they have passed down generation to generation. And they seamlessly, seamlessly, like they've got this gap, but they consider it a gap. They consider they're going to go back and uh, and they'll yeah. stop at nothing. I mean, it's not it's, it's not, um, fear-mongering to say they're going to go after loving versus loving. Yeah. They are,
0: yeah. and
1: um, overful
0: yeah, yeah, I know like to just sit with that like the the phrase states rights and how what <laughs> it's code for, you know, right. like back exactly. during the 1860s it was code for we want to keep. Uh, the institution of slavery, or uh, yeah, like, and now what states' rights are regarding birth and things like that. And it's like when you look at this nation being built on enslavement of African Americans and their descendants, as well as the genocide of uh, indigenous groups that, you know, they're still here, they right. have persevered uh, despite what this country tried to do to them. Um, and yeah, and you look at that, and, and even uh, Japanese internment camps, like all these ways of seeing people as enemies and trying to control and it coming down to uh, a theocracy, you know, and I've seen people who are saying, I don't care what the Bible says about such and such that shouldn't be making its way into the laws we're making. But it's like, we see that happening because should what they want the is
1: should is the devil. Like, yeah. of course, it should not be in it, but it is, it is it because is. the people who want it there are in power.
0: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. First of all, I could like <laughs> talk to you for 17 hours. Um, but <laughs> oh I guess gosh, how, it's already been an hour. How does it happen? has. I know. I know. Um, but yeah, it's been so good. And I know that uh, before we officially jumped into the conversation, you said your book, all you can really say about it at this point is 2024 expected release. Yes. So, <laughs> I want to keep that to people's forefront mm-hmm. uh, to be thinking about that. Uh, and so to wrap us up, I want to ask these final questions from Tasha Hunter of the When We Speak podcast. Who mm-hmm. or what inspires you? Oh, strong women. Strong women living their truth um, of all of all kinds.
1: Um, actually, anyone stepping into their truth and owning it in a um in a loving, vibrant way. I, I cry at well done art. Well done stories, films, anything that's done with excellence. Um, yeah, Yeah. that's inspiring.
0: I love that. Uh, who or what makes you laugh?
1: <laughs> oh, geez. Um, my kids. Um, I love some good gross-out humor, um, memes, sarcasm, satire. Uh, I got some dark. I've got dark humor. Um, mm-hmm. When you've been through the dark, you can find the humor in it. Gallows yeah. humor, I like that. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, what song or type of music can get your body moving or dancing?
1: Just about anything. Um, I have very diverse music tastes, so it's going to be a matter of what tempo I'm dancing. But mm. um, let's see, current favorites right now. Ah, uh, Gosh, what's her name? She wrote, it's Tammy Nielsen. It's my anthem, my summer anthem, Careless Woman. Okay. Awesome. I haven't heard it yet. I have it. You're going to love it. (laughs) Awesome.
0: Yes. I love that. Awesome. Well, where can people find you on social media to stay up to date on your book, your work, anything else you have going on?
1: Yeah. I'm Tia Lovings writer on all the platforms and, um, I have a fundy cheat sheet. If you don't want, if you don't know the insider terms of the things that I talked about, it's a good, um, like starting, starting point. You can go to that at TiaLovings.com and it's just a PDF download. It gives you kind of like a, an insider glossary to, um, my content.
0: Nice. Yes. That is amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation, for talking with me today about your own journey and mm-hmm. shedding the light on the realities of Christian fundamentalism. And I enjoyed our conversation and I'm just so very grateful for you. So thank you.
1: Same. Thank you for this opportunity. You are radiant. Also, I like that side light that's hitting you. It's very Sunday morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's my, uh. it's a
0: lamp, but oh. you know, <laughs> well, it looks like early Sunday morning rays. It's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to broadening the narrative. Follow me on Instagram at broadening the narrative. If you haven't yet, please rate, review and follow the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Your engagement helps others find the show. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend and on your social media. I really think that little by little person by person, we can broaden the narrative. My memoir, As Familiar's Family, is now available to purchase through my website at NikkiPappas.com. As Familiar's Family explores how I was groomed for toxic relationships and religion and how I got out, and I know I'm not the only one. So head to my website to buy a copy for yourself and anyone else who is hurting and healing from toxic relationships and religion. The music for this season was created by Joshua Pappas, my oldest child, we worked together using the Chrome Music Lab Songmaker and had so much fun. I also want to thank Daniel Bolin for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for podcast episodes as they become available by visiting my website. Until next time, grace and peace, friends.